Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined as I always am by my good pal and my good producer, Mike Zimmerman, Mike Hayding. I'm doing good. It's getting a little cold here in the uh, in the US, but we're trying to stay warm. Yeah, it's cold over here too, but you know, that, what better weather to sit down and listen to a, a conversation about football than, than cold weather. So we've got a really good topic for people to get their teeth into today. In fact, uh, not so much a topic as a guest, because we had Dean Holden, a former Charlton manager, coming on to talk to us, mainly focusing on what does a manager do when they're between jobs. Uh, Mike, you've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? I mean, it's fantastic how open and honest Dean was. Uh, I, I think both me and you going into the the interview wasn't wasn't sure how how much he was going to share, and and he shared everything. But the thing that really stood out to me was him talking about kind of this unwritten rule in the coaching fraternity, where if a coach is out of a job, they're they're welcomed into other training sessions just to observe and and. and kind of float around, pick up other ideas. And, and I thought that was that was really, really cool because all, all these coaches have been out of jobs before and they know what that feeling is like. So I think it's it was fascinating to, to see how accepting all these other coaches are to managers who are out of jobs. Yeah, and I think the... The reality is, as Dean was saying throughout the interview, you know, he got five games at the beginning of this season before he was fired. It's an incredible amount of pressure to live under, right? And the sort of you're only as good as your next five games. That's a huge amount of pressure to operate under. And I think all of those coaches know what that pressure is like. They understand the realities of football and and how easy it can be for you to lose your job. And so they're out there helping one another out to you know, get through these situations when they might be between jobs. So yeah, really fascinating stuff from Dean. And again, as I always say, the best thing for us to do is to just jump over and let Dean do the talking himself. Today we're joined by a former footballer who Wikipedia informs me went on loan to Iceland right at the beginning of his career and who has since had stints as a manager at Oldham Athletic, Bristol City, Stoke City and Charlton Athletic. Dean Holden, welcome to the show. How are you doing, John? Doing really well. I've actually got um, the Bolton News article from oh, that game, it, yeah. For, so it goes, it goes on to say Reebok fullback. I don't know what that means. Dean Holden has made a solid start to his Icelandic football career, playing as a centre half in Valor's one nil victory over Grind- Grindavik. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember it really well. Hmm. Back in the summer of um, summer of two thousand, it's never something I thought I would be doing at that age, to be honest. But it was on the back of a had a severely broken leg. I'd got into Bolton's hmm. first team and played sort of 25, 30 games in the championship, and unfortunately got snapped in two against. Um, Sheffield United so spent about 16 months out of the game and then obviously when our season finishes I, that's just when I got fit so yeah. I went out there for the summer season so wonderful well, the, place the article goes say. on to say that you um, you made a dream comeback for Wanderers in the last match of that regular season scoring an injury time equaliser against Sheffield United how ironic is that eh? the team that broke my leg 16 months prior so it felt was, good though I bet I was, yeah I had a tear in my eye actually it's quite, an, quite an emotional day that having spent all that time and we just got in the playoffs so Big Sam didn't want to 
he didn't want to sort of risk some of the more regular players that were going to go and play in the playoffs. So he played a few fringe players out. It was my first game in 16 months in the team, scored last minute. So I'm thinking like, brilliant, I'm going to be in the team on Tuesday night in the playoffs. And the very next morning I was on a, on a flight to Iceland. It was uh, people, the older the older fans of this uh, of this show remember Goodney Bergson, mm. who's a top player. And, and more more recently, uh, Ida Good Johnson. They both played for that club out in Iceland. So there was a nice connection. Mm, yeah, no, interesting. And... Um, yeah, rather than talking about your your playing career, um, I heard you recently say you you prefer being a coach to being a player. So we'll skip over the playing career. But um, let's talk about the the managerial career because back in August you were sacked by Charlton after being in charge of the club for just under a year. Um, you turned the team around the season before, but you were given just five games for the league in the league before the decision was made this season. So how surprised were you when you received that phone call? Um. I was surprised on the fact it was only five games. As you said, we won the first game of the season against Leighton Orient. We then lost the next four by one goal each game. We did the post, the bounce of a ball. We'd had two letters from the FA apologising for not giving us penalties. So more important to me, the, the underlying stats and data was we was the second best team in League One behind, I think, Bolton Wanderers at the time in terms of creating really good attacking chances. XG was high. Uh, we had some obviously some things to fix defensively. We had a couple of mistakes within there, but I was very happy with the way that we were working behind the scenes, you know, the, the, the connection we had with the supporters, certainly the players and, and the, the fans, we had a really good working environment. And you got to remember at Christmas when I went in, the remit was to, was to stay in the division. Charlton Athletic cannot go to League Two. And we was 18th. I don't think the team had won in two months. So it was a, it was a good turnaround. We finished 10th. I still think we could have done a little bit better. Um, the club recruited in the summer some players who who'd not had uh, pre-seasons at the clubs they'd been at for different reasons. And so it was just, it was a slow start to the season. But like I say, more importantly to me, the way we were working, I was really confident we were going to have a, a really good, successful season. And yeah, the phone call came on the Sunday, unfortunately, on Bank Holiday Sunday. It, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a surprise to my wife. We was at a family sort of fun fair and she said as soon as I took my phone out and said, I've got, she said, in deep down she knew there'd been, everything changed at the end of pre-season. Obviously there was a new ownership coming and, I think there have been a few things in the off-season which I was a little bit um, maybe worried about. So um, I look back and, th you know, we, 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 after the first game against Leighton Orient that we won, we went and went to Newport. We then made 10 changes in, in the League Cup game. Still with a really strong team to win the game, but it was to more importantly get some match fitness into these players that had not had it in pre-season. If I knew what I knew now, I would have probably gone with a stronger team to just to survive and stay in the job. But I always say, oh, you make the right decisions for the club. You're paid by the club, you're an employee. Um, maybe some more experienced managers certainly have told me privately that you, you need to look after yourself a little bit more and maybe I'll learn that as I get older but for me it's about leaving the club in a, a better position than you found it and you know they've started to pick up some results obviously they've lost the last two but you know that's because key players have come back from injury we lost Scott Fraser Miles Lieburn Tyrese Campbell's really top players in that team in the first game of the season Miles we lost pre-season so these are things you have to deal with as a manager um, five games very very disappointing but you move forward yeah, you've really started touching on this, but you know, five games is—it's it's almost as though managers are on that sort of rolling five game. You're only as good as your last five, and as good as your next five, right? And it must be a huge amount of pressure on coaches, particularly when it comes to decision making, to to not to to, to think outside of that five game block, right? How, how difficult is that as a as a coach to have to sort of think in those short termist? Terms. Well, like I say, I, I won't fall into that trap. I, think I, I signed a three-year contract in April under the previous owner. Um, I think there is a danger, as we were just talking off air there, weren't we, John? I think there is a danger now, of, you know, irrespective of the manager coming into a job on whatever length of contract, I think there is a, a real worry that the way the industry is going, that 
you know, you need to look after the next month of, of results. And, and everybody wants to win. Of course they do. I'm not saying they didn't want to win, but there's a, there's a season ahead. There's a way of preparing the players for that season. Um, I think Ryan Lowe's the second highest, longest serving manager in the championship. He's been there just over a year. So it's, it is a bit of a crazy industry. Who would put the family's future on that? Um, I'm obsessed with it. You, you touched on my playing career there. It was cut short due to that really bad injury at the, at the beginning. I, I went on to break the same leg two further times so I broke it three times in the end so it, it restricted the level I felt I could get to as a player although I was very proud of making nearly 400 appearances at all different levels Premier League down to League 2 and in Iceland and Scotland which I loved by the way up there but certainly management coaching I don't think there's anything going to get in my way other than maybe myself if that makes sense so that's why I'm, I love I mean there's no buzz like scoring a goal or winning a game as a manager in that technical area there is no feeling like it I heard you give an interview on the Five YouTube channel recently and you talked a little bit there about playing kids and, and believing that that's an important aspect of, of, of being a coach, bringing, bringing kids through and, and trusting kids to be able to, to play at the, at the senior level. Um, moving on from what you've just said in terms of you know, having to maybe look after yourself, and have you changed your opinions on, on any of that? Are you, you still going to be a coach who's going to trust in, in kids rather than thinking, oh, you know, I've only got these five... Five games in front of me, I've got to make sure I'm, I'm getting the strongest team out there. Challenge Athletic have got, for a League One team, have got one of the most productive academies in the UK. It's phenomenal, the players that are coming through the system still there now. And I'm really proud of the amount of players that we gave debuts to, not just actually at Charlton, at, at Bristol City in my previous job. And some of them have gone on, Alex Scott, Antoine Semenyo, some of these have gone on to have um, really good careers and good moves. And I was a young player once, you need an opportunity, you'll only get that opportunity if you're good enough. And if, you, if you're showing every day that you deserve to be in and around the team. And of course, well, I was going to say then that, you know, you get more mistakes for youngsters, maybe, but you still get mistakes for senior players as well, don't you? So we were, we were building a, at the very beginning of the season at Charlton, it was very young. As I say, we lost some key players in pre-season through injury, uh, contact injuries, not, not even soft tissue. I was listening to your brilliant one you did with, with, with Callum. Um, so, you know, I was really sort of pleased with the methodology of pre-season, the fitness of the players and things like that. Sometimes a player gets injured through a knock, Miles rolled his ankle, there's nothing you can do about it. So for me, if they're good enough, they'll be in there and um, you need a nice mixture. Of course, you need some good seniors in and around it to shape you know, the everyday environment, to show them what excellence looks like. Um, and that's why I'm really proud of the job that we did in, in a short short period of time. Yeah. I Following on from, from some of the things you said in that five YouTube uh, interview, you talked a lot about how when you come into a club more often than not, the club isn't going to be in a good moment because they've probably moved their, their previous manager on. It's very unlikely that that manager will have been pulled off somewhere because they've done so well. Um, so when you go into a new club, you have to sort out the basics. You have to usually solve some defensive issues uh, and get a, a really f solid grounding before you can move on to start doing the, the, the more proactive things that you might want to do as a, as a coach. And it feels as though last season you'd gone through that process with Charlton. You'd steadied the ship. And you were starting to embark on the next um, step of the of the project. So, I'm interested in in hearing a little bit about what your plans were for the team in terms of what you did to to, to sort them out last season, and then how it was things were going to change this season. Yeah, we we looked at things in pre-season. I had a, a guy next to me, Anthony Hayes, who when I went into town, I didn't I didn't take any members of staff, and um, it's quite interesting. Well, I think it's interesting. <laughs> I was working with John O'Shea at Stoke City prior to, to going in and, and John knew Anthony from, I think, from a coaching course on the Irish over in Ireland and uh, he said, just have a look at him. And the funny thing, when you go into a new club, all the staff normally think, right, I'm going to be next out the door. So there's, a, there's very much an element of 
of, uh, of people feeling uncomfortable. So for me, it was about making people feel comfortable in there and, and, and obs- observing and seeing how good people were because I've been on the other side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you appreciate that chance, I think. And Anthony was, was fantastic. So we sat down in the off-season, spent a lot of time in the off-season as a staff going through the sports science and again, going back to what Callum was talking about the, with your previous uh, podcast, he's very mu- it was very connected with the sports science, the strength and conditioning, the analysis team. We'd be in there every morning, every afternoon discussing. I'm very much a coach. It's open to to sharing ideas. I think prior, I've heard at different clubs, maybe they, they don't get the opportunity to go and sit with the management team and they go almost get told what, what type of training sessions going on and that type of thing. So for me, it's very collaborative and we had some really good ideas. We, we ch- slightly changed the system in the summer. We, we signed Alfie May. We felt we needed to get someone alongside him. Miles, unfortunately, got injured. Chucks and EQ, who's a top player in League One, was, was close to being back fit. And we were building in different ways. So we would sometimes set up as a 3-5-2, what, what would look like a 3-5-2. But when we were building the game from the back and through the mid part of the pitch, we'd, we'd drop into a, maybe a 4-3-3. When we were defending, we'd adopt a slightly different style. And, and people, I think quite uh, dismissively sometimes, maybe they don't mean to be, but they talk about players at League One level and Championship. You know, can they do what the top players can do? Yes, they can. As long as, the, as long as there's a good connection between the coaches and the players and there's an there's a education side to it. Uh, I learned it from Smith, Dean Smith when I went to Walsall. There's a way of when we talk about environment culture. That's what it is. It's it's been a good teacher. You know, we're, we're coaching football, but the players need to understand what it is that you want from them. You know, your livelihood is on them doing what you want them to do and them going out and being the best they can be. So, uh, a two-way approach for me is definitely the, the, the best way to go. And that's why I was so excited about the way that we were playing because it wasn't just like we're playing in this system against that team and we're going to play like that every week. It's you know, I'm very much a coach that wants to have possession of the ball. I think you've got much more uh, much more control over the game in that scenario. Uh, the, the stats will back it up. We were a team that when we lost it, counter-pressing was excellent, top of the division. Really aggressive, high press and energy. And, and you know, if a team wants to go against you and, and go full press from from, a, from one of our goal kicks and we can get, and they've got two slow centre-backs, two for two, we want to get in behind them as quick as we can mm-hmm. in, that, in that moment. There might be other times where teams come to the valley, which they, they invariably would do against Charlton, and sit off you and you need to find a way to break through them and it's about making giving players decision making and that's what you get through training you know we regularly set them up against different scenarios get the under 21s across and sometimes we'd say right go man for man against them and just run all day sometimes we'd say drop off block it up players need to make decisions you know if you play chess against yourself you'd probably win so you need to adapt to the way that the opposition sets up and that that was the fascinating thing and uh yeah yeah, that, that's the way we approached it. Did you find the players at that level and at that age were pretty receptive to to those sorts of ideas and and, and the concept of flexibility, being able to shift against various opponents? I think again, irrespective of the level, in my experience, and I've worked obviously in the Premier League all the way down as a player and coach, it, it's about the individual person. You know, there's there's some players I've played with who are magicians on the pitch and not got the off the pitch and not, probably not the brightest bulb in the box. Um, so you've got to get an understanding of every individual and, and that's the fascinating thing behind it, the psychology so I know we're talking tactics now I don't think you could, the four corner model the tactic physical I think they all intertwine because to talk tactics to a player you need to know how they learn so are they going to be a, a visual learner are they going to be someone more often than not players are, are, are kinesthetic they want to be out on the pitch they want to be we had a player at Walsall I won't name him when I was coming through with Dean Smith and he couldn't watch a video clip and listen to the coaches talking over it. He found it really difficult, but you get him out on the grass and stand him in his position and talk through it and he'd pick it up like that. So for me, that's the most important thing is making sure that they they can understand what it is that you want from them. And, and, and absolutely, you could see in the performances, as I say, that they, they were picking them ideas up and, and giving you ideas as well. You know, When you come in at half-time, what, what does that look like? I always give the players a couple of minutes to have a drink and a toilet break and maybe a row if we're losing. 
And then when we come in, it's very constructive. More often than not, we'll use cl video clips and, and you need to know what the players are feeling on the pitch. We can see it from, I don't know what angle it would be, studying the technical area, looking across. If you spoke to a fighter pilot in a jet and he was going over a war zone, he would see it completely differently out of that cockpit than you would see it watching up on a TV screen, looking at that. Maybe that's not a good analogy, but you know they see it completely different and they feel it differently as well. So um, the more you can get in, and you need good characters in there, George Dobson, the captain, people that will give you that information. Yeah, presumably that's quite different from the way that football was done when you were first starting out as a professional, right? Yeah, complete opposite. Um, as I say, Sam Allardyce gave me my debut at Bolton Wanderers and I worked for, for many, very many good managers throughout my career, many managers because I had a lot of clubs. Um, I did see a lot of, I don't mind saying it, I did see a lot of poor practice as a player in terms of the way you were treated, the way you were spoken to, the way you would just sometimes just go out there and get on with it. There was not much tactics going on, but... Dean Smith at the end for me, that last two and a half years at Walsall when I was 33, gave me an opportunity. He showed me something which I, I deeply believed in how, how I wanted to approach it when I was given the opportunity as a coach. But I was, I'd never seen it before, so I was probably a little bit scared of doing it. But he showed me you can be that empathetic leader. You can be that, you know, it can be about education. Don't get me wrong, there's a ruthless side to it and there always has to be. Um, but that, that was something I really picked up on. I want to go back to that um, five YouTube channel thing you did. I really enjoyed it. it was, I think you'll be on there soon. Ash and Steel, have you yeah. on? <laughs> I, but I really, really enjoyed it. It was very, it was very insightful. One of the things you said in that in that um, chat was that you're not it, being a coach is not about keeping people happy. It's about respect. And I thought that was really interesting. The, the way that you're dealing with with players, and I think that almost touches on what you were just saying there. The way that the coaching staff now think about the, the, the their dealings with the players. Um, could you expand a little bit on what you mean by that? That it's not about keeping people happy; it's about respecting people. Yeah, as a player, I was always I'd like to think I was a, a, a good teammate in terms of would help the guy next to me. But all, when you step over that line, you do anything to, to win. You're in, I became a different personality on the pitch, and as a coach, I think I'd like to think I was a decent fella. I really would. I think there's nothing to be ashamed about in saying that but certainly when it comes to, to coaching and management you pick up work someone said to me right you're the gaffer now I went from Bristol City where I was the assistant for three years and not only had I been the assistant where you've you are that middleman you know you are the guy that doesn't have to pick the team so all the players get on me you're, you're the guy that does the fun training parts of the training session and someone said to me now you're the manager you've got to be different and I, I couldn't disagree more in terms of I'd played with some of these guys and I've heard stories where a, a player would leave um the training ground on a Tuesday and on the Thursday he's the caretaker manager and he comes in and all of a sudden he's dressing differently and he's talking to people differently. And players are very clever, as I said before, they sniff it in seconds. And if I'm going to fail or, or or be successful in this job, I want to do it true to who I am, which is being a decent fella, which is going into an environment and wanting everybody to feel empowered, but ultimately making the big calls and never ever ducking a, a big decision. So it's not about liking someone, it's about them having respect. I, there's a lot of managers and people in the game that I think that rule by fear. And I think there's a short-term element to that. And sometimes, as I say, you need to you need to show your nasty side at half-time or, you know, you feel you need a reaction. You've got to, you know, in the summer we let five or six players go. You have to leave players out regularly in the team. I remember when I got the, the job at Stoke City for one game after Michael O'Neill unfortunately lost his job. I was I made a decision. I left Phil Jagielka out of the team. I think it was thirty nine at the time. This was last season, and we brought young Connor Taylor in, who, who's now on uh, sorry now at Bristol Rose, I think. And these are the calls you've got to make as a manager. It was I probably only knew I had one game, and it wasn't about me getting a result to get the job. I knew Alex Neal was coming into Stoke City. I felt that Connor Taylor deserved to play instead of Phil Jagielka on that day. Phil's had the most remarkable career, mm. so you make the big calls. 
there's a way of doing it. I got dropped for the Scottish Cup final with an hour and a half before kickoff, and there was two busloads of people coming up. I never knew I knew that many people, but I think my family must have recruited a few. But there was two busloads coming up from Manchester, and I had to ring them at ten to two and say, "But by the way, might as well turn around. I'm not even on the bench." And there's things like that that you remember as a player. Um, but like I say, the key thing is he's making the big calls. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you're, you're talking about with authenticity. Then you've got to be authentic with the players, and if you are, then they'll they'll respect you back. Yeah, and your knowledge is the level of your knowledge will get you to a certain level in the game, won't it? You know, if you're if you're a if you're a tactical genius and you treat people really really well, then you've probably got the very very top. Probably not everybody's like that, are they? Um, there's certain things I believe I still need to keep improving on, which is now what I'm doing, spending my time in between jobs, uh, trying to upskill as much as I can. Um, but yeah, I don't believe you have to be a, a bad person to be successful. I, I, I really don't. What do you think of coaches like Ange Postacoglu, who uh, the impression I get is that he's quite he's quite standoffish with his players? Um, do you think that's a different sta- uh, style of management? Yeah. How would you base would you what are you basing that on? What you see on the on the telly? Just what after no a game people stuff? people often say. It, I've heard secondhand that right, you okay. know he's a he's a coach who who will often like he he's not one for small talk. I think is the <laughs> is the phrase that's used. And he um, likes small talk. <laughs> I think that I, I, I've grown to really like Angie. I mean, I love watching his team play. Now I've seen him a couple of times, but probably second to Deserby at the moment. Um, but the way he's talking, you know, you see him. I seen he did an interview with Gary Lineker recently. Didn't he talking? He talks about stuff that's going on in the world. And again, going back to. And I say this in most things that, that I'm talking about at the moment in terms of the world's not in a great place. And certainly this country, when I was managing at Bristol City, it was during COVID. It was a terrible time for this country, weren't it? And everybody had their own version of COVID. But people, in my experience, want to wake up in the morning and want to get out of bed and think, and with a bit of a spring in the step, and think, I'm really looking forward to going into it. Now, whether you work in a, in a newspaper shop or you work in a football club, it's no different. You're dealing with people. Um, I went out in a child and the place was flat. It was a little bit like that. So you, people, I really believe in people. They've got so much more to give when you give them, when you empower them to do it. And as a manager, you have to go, okay, yeah, that's great. Okay, no, we're going to make this decision. And you have to be the man or the, or the lady in charge that makes the decision. That's the role of a manager. But if you've got experts around you that are better at, in different departments than you are, I think that's a, that's a dream scenario. Let's talk a little bit about pre-season because you talked before about how um, important pre-season can be for getting your fitness levels up, getting players ready for the new season and obviously moving from one season to another where you're wanting to instill maybe some different tactical ideas. Obviously, on the other side of the, of the microphone, we, we hear things about pre-season being important, um, but how, just how important is it as a coach to have that time to start instilling these new practices into a team? Oh, it's massive. It, it, it's absolutely massive. The two experiences as, as a manager that I've had, I went into Bristol, uh, I went into Charlton at Christmas. My me, me first game was on Boxing Day within two days. So you've got no time to get the... And, and from that moment to the end of the season, there was there was very rarely three or four days without a game. So we had no time to get the players fitter, really, in that short period. It was about fine-tuning some tactical things to, to help the team win and survive, which we did. Pre-season then is different because, of course, you've got the physical side of it, which... I believe pre-season should be tough, should be really tough. You've now got the sports science, which we never had when I was a player. You, you know, you were just basically running until you were sick. And it's funny because you didn't seem to ever get many injuries, as many injuries back then as maybe they do now, I don't <laughs> know. But certainly tactically is the biggest thing, isn't it? You know, anybody can get a player fit with with respect. I don't, I'm not dis, I'm not dis belittling the, the, the medical teams at all. Um, but what I mean by that is it's the, you've got six weeks and you build it up. Um but tactically, that's where you, you get all that time on the training pitch. You literally can get double, triple sessions. The first three weeks of pre-season, you're playing friendly games against local teams. And 
but you know the result. You, you know you're going to win the game anyway, and you know the result's not that important. So you're able to really, really get the players to adapt to what you want. And once you hit the first game of the season, normally every three days, certainly Championship and below, you're playing games, aren't you? So there's no time. Um, so it's not just on the grass. It's the classroom sessions. It's when you get that four, five, six days away, wherever you choose to go in your pre-season trip, because the players are not naturally finishing training and, and then going off home. All that extra time that you get in the hotels and stuff, you can you can form that bond with them, again, psychologically, which is massive. But it gives you also that time around a breakfast table to sit with a player and discuss his own game or what you want from him in moving forward, how he can improve. It's about improving players, isn't it? You know, the job of a manager is to, is, to, is to win games of football and improve players and try and get them to the next level. And that, that, that's where the fascination lies for me. It's been a couple of months since everything ended at Charlton. Obviously, time is a is a is good for giving you sort of critical distance. I'm looking back at, at, at the you know what's happened in the past. Looking back at that time, those five games, have you changed your opinion on what happened then? Is there anything you'd do differently, or are you are you still adamant that that what you were doing was the correct thing to be doing at that time? Yeah, I would I would pick a team to to go that was fit enough to go and and win that game at Newport in the cup game because I think that might have given me. But who knows? I don't regret that. If you're asking me the obvious question, I won't duck it. So I'll, I'll but I don't regret it at all because the, the players benefited from their minutes on the pitch, and that's why they've then gone on to win some games later down the line. So no, um, I digested everything. Um, I think it's really important you to reflect when you're in the job. You know, in terms day to day, but it, you know, just before you put your head on the pillow, have a little thought, look back at your day, what that's been like. Because sometimes I like to get in early. I like to get in half six, seven in the morning before anyone comes in, because it's once people start to arrive, certainly the players, it can become so chaotic with lightning bolts coming out of nowhere. And mm. so I like to have that time to prepare and certainly to reflect. And, and I, I, when I reflect, I do it chronologically from the day I got the job to the, the day I lost my job and everything in between. And as long as you collect the data along the way, I've done a couple of. So <laughs> my voice is not the most interesting, so it's hard to, for me to listen back, trust me. But a couple of little video diaries along the way, just because certain games, I look back now and I look at the team, I think, why did you play him in that position? And you, oh, yeah, it's because he was, he'd been ill two days before the other guy and he weren't fit enough to play. So it's important to, to, to log that information, I think, so that you can look back. And yeah, there's loads of things I would do differently. Uh, certainly with the team and the selection of things like that, not, not really at all, but certainly within the eight months of the job, of course, there's... You always look back and think, mm, okay, but each decision you make is the right decision at the time. It's with context in it that you can maybe look back and think, maybe you know, should I have made a different decision? But I'm very comfortable. I sit in now out of work after being the first manager to lose his job in the football league. I think this season, which is a record nobody wants, but I certainly sit here comfortable in my own skin of the way that I was, the way that I led the club, and the way that we that we moved the club forward in that short period of time. You've mentioned that you love coaching, um, but I think it's very obvious from my conversation so far that coaching is a brutal profession. Um, was there anything about the experience that you went through at the end at Charlton that made you think, you know, do I really want to be doing this? No, never, no. I'm obsessed with it. I love it. Um, I spend all my time other than at the moment with my wife and my kids and do obviously family stuff, but um, you've always got one eye on the next job and where that might come and it's, it's really exciting I have to say because you could rock up anywhere in the in the country anywhere abroad it's so I am excited for that um, the hardest thing is is obviously when you get sacked it's happened a couple of times which it, which it does you know I think probably five ten years ago it's probably I don't know if shame's too strong a word but it certainly felt that nowadays I mean as soon as people like Mourinho started getting sacked and you just ah, come on mm -hmm. so for me the hardest thing is always you know 
however you get told this time it was over the phone the hardest thing is then telling your wife and your, your dad and your kids your family things like that you know but like they always say if you uh, if you don't want to experience them lows and then get into a you know, I, I don't know what a normal job would be, but you know what I mean? The highs are incredible. So I can manage the lows, don't worry about it. I've, I've got enough life perspective to be able to manage them lows and, and, and wake up next morning and, and look forward and crack on. What have you been doing since Charlton? What, what does the life of a, a in-between jobs football manager look like? That's a nice way of putting in-between. I thought you were say out-of-work football manager. I, I'm positive. I'm positive for you. I'm saying you. positive vibes from it's this. It's an honour to be on it, I have to say. I, yeah. watched, I watched a lot of your stuff. So you. you and Michael, you do a great job, so... I should have said that at the beginning, shouldn't I? Um, <laughs> right. I feel like I've fished for that one, but we'll carry on no, before um, everyone turns off because it gets too smarmy. Yeah. I've probably <laughs> never watched so many live games. I think when you when you're in the job, you, you spend a lot of time on on the on the on Y scout things like that, prepping opposition, and there's not much time other than a, a, a live game on TV. Maybe a Friday night game you might get to watch. So I've, I've been to loads of games at different levels. I've been to Premier League right down to League Two. Um, I've been into a couple of a couple of clubs observing. I think the key thing for me is when you get that call. He's, he's having a, a clear understanding of because if I get a call this afternoon, I could, I'll be I'll be there tomorrow morning, um, and probably there's going to be a game within a day or two. So you need to understand. So as soon as calls start coming in from from people interested, you need to really start to get to grips with, you know, the squad of players that you've got. What does the staff structure look like? Um, who are the teams that they're about to play coming up? Is there a game that I can go and watch um, in case I get the job or in case I decide to take the job? You know, things like that. So. Um, Loads of things like that. The LMA are great, I have to say, in terms of um, keeping you busy. So I'm Thursday, I'm at a, a really great event, actually, at St. George's Park. So there's eight managers that are taking... That are, it's like an eight-a-side tournament. Um, I think a load of companies have, are down there. So I think it's me, Dean Smith, and uh, quite a few... Well, I don't know who the other managers are going to be, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. And um, I went to a data company to see how managers, how clubs recruit not just managers, but coaches and players and where do I stack up in terms of all that data in terms of, I know I'd obviously stack up highly in terms of young players coming through and being given opportunities in first team, but you know, in terms of style of play, where do I stack up? And So I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to keep learning. Um, I'm, is the phone going to ring if you sit on your backside? I don't think it is. I've, I've, I've got that sort of inbred, probably for me upbringing, for me mum and dad, that inbred kind of, feel like you're wagging school. You know what I mean? Mm. I don't know if you ever wagged school, John. You don't like you said you went to Cambridge, <laughs> so I don't know if you ever did. But you have that nagging doubt in the back of your mind where you might get caught. So it, there's that fits feeling of come on, get up, go and do something. Uh, mo and most importantly, as well, spending a lot of time with, with 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 kids. Our youngest is five now. So when I started coaching, he was he was just being born, and so you, I've, I've really enjoyed bonding with the with the with the kids. And um, and obviously, you know, my wife's doing a lot more TV stuff now, so being able to look after them a bit more while she's She's out gallivanting, so we've swapped roles. Um, hopefully not for long. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the co- you've gone through the coaching pathway. So most I think most people will go FA1, 2, UEFA, B, A, Pro. Once you've gone through that route, how much scope is there for you to to do sort of continual professional development, as it were? Is there is there anything out there that, that you, you mentioned the LMA? But is there is there stuff out there where you can sort of you know top up your top up your learning, or is it just is it is are those, are those coaching pathways simply to get you to a point where they're like you're now a coach, you're on your own, get on with it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit like getting your driving test in it. It's like once you've got your pro license, which which I got in 2016. Um, like you can then go and coach to the highest level, but you're absolutely right. The LMA, there was there was one a couple of weeks ago, Jesse March. They've done since COVID, they've done a lot of stuff on Zoom, which is great if you're out and about. There was one with Jesse March talking about leadership. There was one just prior to that with uh, Lopetegu, more tactical. They're really great days because you, you you do like a like a classroom session for an hour. They talk through what the session's going to be. They take you out on the sometimes they do it at Man City or at West Brom. They take you out on the training pitch. They go through it, a bit of lunch, and then in the afternoon, a bit of a Q and A. So you do really learn, and you learn from the people that are in the room with you experienced managers, young players coming through, which I was when I first started doing it. But most of it, you have to, yeah, you've got to get off your, as I say, get off your backside and go out and make, I just, what I found, and we we're talking off air, weren't we, there's a lot of people who want who want to help because there's a lot of people who are fascinated in this game that I'm lucky enough to be involved in. I mean, I've, I've had four months out of the game in 28 years since I left school. So football, that's, how lucky is that? And football's given me a lot. So, from what I'm, fi- I'm finding, like this, the data company, like they, come, they were like, yeah, come in. So if you pick the phone up and someone is welcoming to you coming in, then go and go and learn. Um, but I think yeah, you've probably got to do that through contacts, um, through LinkedIn. You know, you can probably tell I'm I'm not I'm not behind the door. I don't mind picking the phone up and, and saying, "Can I come and have a coffee?" And, and, and like I say, most people are great and they want to help. How much do you have to sort of push yourself to go and watch stuff that you might not normally watch and and put the effort into sort of see what's going on? behind the scenes tactically? Is that something that you're sort of self-led learning almost? Yeah, I think, I think you never, I think if you, if you, if you walk into a room and think you're the smartest guy in the room, I think you're the quickest way to fail. I really do. And I remember Sam Allardyce saying something when he first came into Bolton, he, he developed the club to a point where he wanted to be the thickest guy in the office. And I think that's a really great thing to remember. You need to have a low enough ego to be able to cope with that. You know, in my experience, certainly in football, there's a lot of people who like to believe they're the smartest guy in the room and each to their own. But for me, it's about never believing that you know everything because you don't. Um, and the people I've got to know on the circuit, like I say, just, I mean, the, the prime example is when we played Man United at Christmas for Charlton was you know, everybody in the interview after the game all... Eric Tenag's asked you to come into account. I just said to Eric, is there any chance I can come in? And he, he couldn't say no, could he? Well, he probably could have. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's it's just, it fascinates me. I went to see Stuart Lancaster over in Ireland, who's the ex-England rugby coach, because he was, I found out he was an ex-teacher, because rugby was that, it, was, it wasn't very professional, was it, a few years ago? So most guys had Clive Woodward, they all had normal jobs. And I needed to improve my way of taking, you take so many meetings as a coach, four, five, six meetings a week. 
and I needed to improve. I used to video them and watch them back, and sometimes you're stuttering and you, you know, you're not getting your point across as well as you would like to. So I went to watch him for two days over in Leinster, and it was fascinating. And I learned so much. And he, again, from that rugby world, very, very open. Eddie Jones, the same, gets a lot of stick in the press, but has been brilliant with me. I met him four or five times. And most of the time, as I say, people are that fascinated with football when they're in other sports or business or wherever they, whatever industry they're in. They're very open about you coming in. So for me, it's just about that. It's just a man mentality of, of making sure that you, that you keep learning as much as you possibly can. Yeah, and it's easy for us to fall back and say and suggest that improvement is about learning new tactical systems and obviously the, the the job of a coach is much more widespread than just simply you know thinking of new ways to to get more out of your players um i'm thinking particularly in terms of, you mentioned communication and communication skills extremely important and we had a a premier league assistant coach come and work with us for a little while to talk about communication um just to hear from us about what we're doing and he was saying that he has a he has a five minute slot to talk to the players and it takes him about four hours to prep that five minute slot and um i think that again there's these are the, all sorts of things that i think a lot of people just simply wouldn't think of being the remit of a coach and, and being in the remit of something that you can improve upon right yeah i think I, I always go back to being a player because I'm not that far removed from that. I'm 44 years old now. I'm still, I've got young kids myself, so you've still got to stay um, relevant, I suppose, in that regard. And, and and this is the way that young people are learning, isn't it? Through the through the iPads and you've got information. They don't have to go down to the local library and get a ticket and then go and find a book on a shelf anymore. Everything everything's there, and 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 a lot of the time, in my experience, they need to know the why to to get the buy-in from a group of players. They want to know the why. So I think it's probably more time consuming than it would have been when I was a player because, you know, the manager will come in and say, this is the system and this is how we're going to do it. And uh, if you don't do it, you won't be in the team. It was pretty simple. I really, I really, I really mean that. So there's a lot more time goes into it. Um, but the tactical side of it for me, the game, it's a different sport to what it was 15 years ago. Uh, some of the new rules that have come in, but the way teams are playing now, I watched Leicester against Blackburn and went to Ewood a couple of weeks ago and you're watching... I mean, it's fantastic what Maresca's done in, it in that short space of time with, with the team. Obviously, we talked about Brighton before. I was watching uh, Spurs the other night against Palace and obviously Russell at Southampton. You know, there's different... And you've got to give a lot of credit to these types of coaches because they're not just going copying and doing the norm. They're coming up with, with, with new ideas and when you look at midfielders, the way they're rolling into midfield... Uh, sorry, fullbacks rolling into midfield and it's it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to pick... Uh, to play. I watched Southampton Birmingham at the weekend and saw Rooney's interview after and, you know... It, it's difficult as players rotating all over the place and if you get the timing right and and that's where going back to pre-season that's why that that's why that period of time is so magical because not only is the sun shining but you get all that time on the grass to embed uh, and if you get a player the the, the, the the coolest thing for me is when you say when you're building from the back and you've got you know you're coming up against an opposition you've watched them that many times you're expecting them to press in a certain way and they might do something different on the on that particular afternoon and the players are smart enough to be able to solve the problem on the pitch and find the spare play and get through the pitch. And that that's the ultimate for me because the players are the ones that have got to make decisions. You know, we're, we're screaming at them on the sides and, and sometimes you need to keep them, um, you, you need to keep that information going into them. But when they're, when you've got players out there that are making them decisions and, and, and that that's very much player-led ownership and that that's a really cool thing, yeah. You mentioned a few coaches. You give me a sense of what your, your sort of aesthetic ideal is as a, as a coach you mentioned De Zerbi and, and Ange Postacoglu and then Russell Martin and Enzo Maresca obviously as you said they, these guys have really have complex tactical systems they they you know they think a lot about uh, build up shapes and structures and how to rotate interchange players to, to be able to get you know upside find find in free men between lines and, and and get the ball to them 
how do you, how is it when you're when you're coaching at League One level to to watch that kind of football? How how much of that can you watch and say, you know, I, I can do that? I mean, Eric Ten Hag, you mentioned before, just come out in an interview, interview this week and said, I can't get my team playing the way that Ajax were mm-hmm. playing. Um, presumably, you feel <laughs> you feel that sort of uh, experience uh, even more when you're a League One coach. So, what what the sort of le- what the sort of lessons you can learn from elite football? Um, when you when you have to be realistic about what you can do with the players that you have, that's a great question, isn't it? I think understanding the players and what their capabilities are as quickly as you can. So when I said before, when you said what we're doing in my spare time, if I know there's a pos- possibility of a job on, the, on spending a lot of time watching uh, not only games but individual clips of players, because you need, very as I said, you, within a couple of days you're going to have a game. You need to play at the strengths of the players. I think. If I'm to get a job, certainly before the end of the season, there's not going to be much chance to coach them in terms of brand new styles and stuff. You're just not going to get the time and the amount of games. So it's, it's playing to the strengths of the players. So when I went in the Charlton at Christmas, the team had been playing really, really heavily based. Um, some fantastic football under Ben Garner previously. But again, some things people don't realise. They'd lost a couple of key players to that. So there's one of the centre-backs was missing. Goalkeeper maybe. So if you haven't got players to play that style, the pitches had started to turn. We'd just come through that heavy frost. And the, the pitches with some of the pitches. The Valley is it's quite a boggy pitch. Yeah, as well? same again. I saw the game now the other day against Bolton, and um, Bolton's a probably a good example. Ian Everett, the way you know he's building a team now, he's building, he's building a football club. It's fantastic what they've been doing. Went to the Papa John's final. Great ownership behind, really stable, but they've got a style of playing a system that they, they really play to the strengths of the players. And, and what would you describe them as being? They won't be. They're not a total football type of team. They're not also a team. Who was, who was shy of going off the front and playing into Dion Charles and having runners and some speed in behind. So I think they've got a really good balance um, going in that scenario. So it's very much around playing to the strengths of the situation that you're in. So if you're playing against, a, I won't name the club because it'll sound disrespectful, but if you go into a team on Saturday and I've had two days to prep the team having just got the job and you, you know the pitch is not going to be great and you know your best centre-back who can play with the ball is, is missing, you're probably going to have to play a different way, aren't you? You know, the ideal scenario is to, is to have a blank sheet of paper in the summer Bring all the players in that you want. Not all of them. You're always going to have a group of players, but bring some key players like Leicester have done with Winks coming in and, and and some of the players they've brought in who can really adapt and play to how you want them to play. In terms of what you're doing when you're sitting down analysing tape, you said you mentioned you... tape. That's an old school way of <laughs> yeah, putting it. Yeah, <laughs> show my age. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned that you will watch individual clips of, of players. Presumably, you also will watch full full match footage as well. What's your general process of when you're just sat in front of the computer watching the, these games? How are you, do you are you, are you note taking? Are you flipping through the whole game in, at, at speed, or are you are you focusing on things in particular? Are you writing writing stuff down as you go? I, I've used Y Scout. If, if I can't, then you'll probably edit it out. But yeah, there's obviously there's a recording feature on there. So more often than not, I like to watch um, wide angle. So you can see everything that's going on. Um, if I'm looking at individual clips, I'll very much watch it on the TV footage because you're looking at. Again, I keep going back to I'm giving Callum more mentions than you gave the the five pod with Ash and Steve <laughs> before. But when you're talking about you've got a centre back, for example, and people, it's an easy. You see, you hear a lot of stuff like, "Oh, he needs to move his feet better." What does that mean? How? Do, how? And things like that. So you, these are the things. If you're trying to coach a player. Uh, you, you're trying to, or the timing of his pass, or, or you might be using the step over to the winger. We, young Phil Jim uh, Jaden at the moment for Hull. We had him at Stoke. Uh, I only worked with him for a short time, but great example of a young player who had that loan. He's now gone and he's really top player for Hull at the moment and can, can really push on again. And we had, he had some timing issues with when he was doing his tricks. So it's about seeing the footage, showing the player the footage, going out in the grass, working on it. 
time after time after time. So, but if I'm if I'm rec if I'm looking at a, an opposition or or a, or a team that I'm about to become a coach of, then I've, I very much like to watch the wide angle just so you can see everything that's going on on the pitch. And um, not a big massive fan of the effective time stuff as well because every time the ball goes out of play, it's restarts because you like to see what's going on and the ball's dead. You know, we saw that when I went to Charlton, there was a couple of games I'd watched and there was a lot of arms thrown up in the air. There was a lot of poor body language I could see going on and I wouldn't have seen that unless I'd watched the full footage. So I suppose it depends on what, what outcome that you're after. Yeah, yeah. Another thing you've mentioned is going to observe other coaches' training sessions. So have you done much of that and, and what's your general process for that? What are you looking to get out of it? Yes. So for me, the most important aspect for me to learn would be to go in and around a match day so we you know great if you can go in on a Tuesday morning and watch a, you know a full session and, and maybe watch a team meeting and stuff but for me it's about if they were playing on a Saturday it'd be about going into a team probably ideally on the Thursday Friday but if you can only get in on the Friday watch the match prep see the set pieces definitely the team meeting um, more man some managers are more open to that than others some might just say okay sit in the reception while we take the team meeting and the analyst will go through it some are like in you come Thomas Frank Brentford brilliant him and Brian come on in, watch the meeting. Then you watch the game, obviously live from the stand. And then, ideally, the dream scenario is to what is to go in on the Sunday or the Monday whenever the team are in next and do the post-match debrief. So you're getting a really full picture of how they approached the game. What was the game plan? Uh, did it pan out? More, more importantly, when you know when you debrief games, it's easy to just get lost in in the detail. You know, you've put a game plan together for the players. Did the players activate the game plan? Um, so for me, that's that's really really interesting when you can, when you can do that. So hopefully one of them coming up. If I'm not back in work, that is not this weekend. Next weekend, so looking forward to. How that. different are they? Are they are they often quite different club to club. Um, they're different in the sense of who takes it. So when I went into Brentford, I mean it was brilliant at Brentford. It was only this time last season, just after I'd left. Before I went to Charlton, after I'd left Stoke, and um, you know they've got this fantastic training ground now. But at the time it was porter cabins, and it was they had this great big marquee, which was a gym. And um, Thomas and Brian, his coach, came in, pulled the screen down, and Brian's literally stood there with this just this long piece of stick, and he's just literally pointing. So you think we were talking before about the the facilities and the touch screen TVs, which is brilliant. He was just literally stood there, and it was just after I think it was Ever Tony had just scored a did he score a hat trick? It was against Leeds last season. I can't remember who it was yeah, against. Yeah, might, might have been. Is that against your? Leeds, it's yeah. not your team, is it? Um, and he was pointing away at the screen. Other other times, it'll be the manager that takes everything. I, I I've been on the inside of that when you, you as an assistant, you just have to sort of filter around. And if they miss anything or they don't pick up on stuff, you've got to remember what they've missed. So you can, at the end, if they say, "Dean, have you got anything?" You can remember and come in with it. Um, more often than not, it's that it's de definitely in a team scenario. Everyone being there, injured players, uh, subs, keep everybody involved, and. Um, and then, the, 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 yeah, sometimes they'll go and then go and do like a unit meeting in the afternoon after training where it's just a five, five or six defenders and, and then they go probably, well, certainly a lot more into the actual detail of, of their particular unit. And presumably the the fraternity of football managers is, is pretty open for out-of-work out of coaches. They're pretty, generally pretty happy to help you out and, and let you get involved at various things that are going on at their clubs. Yeah, very much so. Um, as I say, some are more open than others. Um but there's one, there's a sporting director I spoke to last week who, who said come in next week and um, it's going to be a full four day. I'm going to have to sleep before I go in. Apparently they've got this programme where, which which sounds like the best one I've ever heard of. It's a full four day where you literally go into every department and you're not you're not just sat there and, and watching. You know they very much want my input from what I've had previously and what I'm, you know they want me to come in almost as an outsider and look at their environment, their culture, and, and give my ver you know my ideas on 
mm-hmm. what's good, what's bad, and all that type of stuff. So uh, that for me is, is the ideal because you're getting you're getting a feeling into everything. It's a, it's a good club as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. We've talked a little bit about how football management is as much about interpersonal skills, if not more than than maybe the tactical side of things. Um, we could maybe tease that out a little bit more, but I, I've got a question here, just asking. How are there things that you can do at, when you're out of work that can improve that side of things? So maybe maybe not specific to football, but are there are there non-football ways of, of of improving the the interpersonal skills that you have? Is there courses that you can go on for more general than just football management courses that you can do that kind of thing? Yeah, they, um, it's not something I've done away from that. It's, I just I go into more into environments and speak to people and find out. I mean, walking through here today, it's 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 like a bit of a what you'd see like maybe down in, in Google or something like there's a load of cool young people who are talking around tables and drawing on whiteboards and it looks like a really relaxed environment but there's a lot of conversations going on so I like to get into places like that um, I'm not really interested in what the outcome uh, so like what the product is if it's a football club great if it's a business or whatever um, I'm sure there would be things if, if someone's asking a question you can go online I, I find you know what I go on most TED Talks and you can get lost in there um, there's some unbelievable um, things on there about body language, how you can improve your, your, your communication, and all of a sudden there's, there's stuff at the side of the screen you end up clicking on on TED Talks, and you can you can lose a couple of hours just by watching some really top top people all around the world talking in snippets. I, I get bored quite easy, so you know, 10, 15 minute. Um, there's one about body language. I can't remember the uh, fake it till you make it. I can't think of a name now, but it's all about physiological, and I'm into all that kind of thing. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, I think you have to find every every marginal gain you can, right? But going back to what we were talking about before, you mentioned that you've been an assistant coach, you've been a manager, and those roles are, you know, as much as you want to sort of act the same way in both of those roles, they're very different roles. And how important are the interpersonal skills that you have as a, a manager important in terms of being able to get people to come along with you on the, I don't want to say journey, it's a bit cliche, but you know what I mean? Project. The, the project, yeah, we go, we'll go with that one, but... How important is it to that you have to maintain um, the, the the I don't want to say a mask as well because I don't I don't think it is a mask but you have to maintain that professional standard that that keeps the 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 particularly younger players perhaps um, believing in in the project and 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 you know carrying forward. How important is it to make sure that you're constantly thinking about the way that you present yourself to people when you're in and around the club? It's quite easy because you said it before. It's about being authentic in it. So it's not about putting a mask on and pretending everything's all right all the time because if you've, if you've had a heavy defeat and, and you come in, it can look a bit false. Um, for me, it's about people having their own say. I've worked in an environment, I won't mention where, where not only did I not enjoy going, I loved my job so much, but I didn't enjoy going into this particular place and you were very much sort of discarded and kind of you've, you, your opinion wasn't valued very much. And I don't think, I felt very... And what happens in a scenario like that, certainly for me, was you, you, you just become very safe in, in your job. So if somebody asks you a question, the boss asks you a question, and you, you'd be a little bit creative, and you, you're probably going to get, I was going to use a word of shunt on here, and you're probably going to get told off. Um, and you get to a point where you think, well, I don't want to be told off, so I'm just going to be safe. Whereas if you get an environment, which I touched on what I could see from this place before, which is it looks like people have really got some really good ideas and they want to share them, and it's a safe environment. One of the first meetings we took at Charlton in pre-season with, on, the, on the flip chart was we were talking about the environment. Before we spoke about tactics, day one, it was about the culture we were trying to create. 
and then you see words on walls, don't you, like respect and loyalty. Are you going to live that every day? And the most important thing is a leader. You've got to be the example more than anything. And we spoke about a safe environment and what that looked like. And some of the players had never really heard of that. And they were like, what do you mean by that? And again, that was a safe environment, ironically, in itself, because they were asking me, what's a safe environment? And if you can come in there and be open and vulnerable enough to share that it's okay to be different. Again, as a player, I was as a young player, I was covered in acne. I was very unsure of, of myself in my own body. My confidence was low at times. And, and it's not sometimes. And when you can flip it the other way and people can be, you can celebrate everybody's different. I think more so now than ever. And you can have a really open um, discussion about different things. We used to speak about all kinds of stuff with the players. Because um, sometimes on a Monday morning, you've had a Sunday off after a game, you come in, you want to get to the tactics, but there's, there's stuff going on in people's lives. Someone's just had a baby. So you're straight into a video screen and more clips. And like I say, there's more meetings than ever nowadays. And so sometimes it would be go and get yourself a cup of tea and make it a bit more relaxed and bring a coffee in or whatever. And then we might just start talking about something that got, happened on the Sunday. And I'd sometimes go off on, a, if, if Hazy, my assistant's listening, or any of the coaches will be <laughs> laughing because just go off on a mad tangent sometimes. And you're in 20 minutes before you even get to the so-called important stuff. But the important stuff might be that first 20 minutes where you're getting people comfortable enough to be able to then talk about the tactics. And, do you know what I mean? Because a lot of the time as a player, when you're not in the team, it's difficult to comment on a video clip. Say, say if someone's made a mistake in a game and you're talking about... Uh, the, the shape of the team is, you might become a bit dis and you might say to someone like an experienced player like I say we had Michael Hector might, he might have been injured Hex what do you think some players aren't comfortable in speaking about the team because they're not in the team but the more you can make it as I've said they're safe and, and everybody in that room knows that he's not trying to dig me out so he can take me spot in the team and things like that don't get me wrong it's, you're trying to take his spot you want everybody I, want, I don't want any player to be happy when they're not in the team I want them, I want them banging the door all that type of stuff but a respectful thing um, I don't know, has that answered your question? Yeah, no, I think so. It must be tough, right? It, it, I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, yeah, you know, like we're, we're going to be authentic. But when you're in a high-performance environment like that, things are going wrong. It must be, you know, and you know that if you make one misstep dealing with someone, you, you lose their respect and it's hard to hard to win that back, right? I think that, that's definitely something I learned when I was when I was coaching, albeit at a much lower level, that, it, it, you know, it takes you a long time to earn the respect of someone and it takes you that amount of time to, to lose it. So it must, be, it must be pretty tough doing that in a high-performance environment. I think, for me, the, we had, a, we, we had a, a period of time last year. We beat Shrewsbury 6-0 at the Valley and within a fortnight we went to Portman Road, Ipswich and got battered. And, and they've pretty much got the same team this year in the Championship and they'll probably go, well, they'll, probably, they'll take Leicester all the way, aren't they? They're the two best teams by a mile. And it was a difficult... 48 hours after losing at Portman Road because you've got you know as a manager you've got a lot of questions from the owners uh, the press team selection decisions and you, you do you sometimes overthink everything when you lose a game we played the reason I tell you that we played three days later away to MK Dons and there's different ways to approach getting a, a hammer in we got hammered because they were better than us on the day I made some decisions at 3-0 down tactically that, that were wrong on the day when I look back Um so we stayed calm after the moment. We didn't drag the players in on a Sunday and watch a video nasty and, and say words in the dressing room. You're dealing with young people now. And again, going back to not only my experience as a player, but certainly my experience as a young coach, some things that, that can be said in dressing rooms can be hard to, you just said it there, can be hard to take back. And sometimes there's a lot of things that are said, which you're shaming players and, and, and players can, in three days, can lose real confidence from that. And you can go in the press after the game and, keep the fans happy by hammering a couple of players and hammering it. I don't think anybody benefits from that. I think that's a poor way out as a manager, to be honest with you. I think you take it yourself and then you deal with it in-house. 
as long as you have honest conversation, players want honesty. If they're not in the team, they want to know why they're not in the team. And we went to MK Dons three days later, and after two minutes, I, had, I said to Hazy, we're all right here. Because we stayed calm in the moment, we took the pressure of the defeat, and we went and we won the game 1 0, could have won five. And that was a really. Now, this is not how great am I. I'm, not, I'm just trying to say, I'm trying to give you an example of that was a really important 72 hours up until the next game, and you could see the players didn't leave confident. It was almost like bad day at the office. Yes, it was tough for the fans, paid ticket, we get that. I, I apologise, we got rid of it, boom, we move on. And if you can navigate them bumps in the road in a, in a season, you can still go and have a successful season with moments like that, as much as you don't enjoy them at the time. Yeah. We're running out of time, so let's talk a little bit about the, the process of looking for new opportunities. What does that, what does that look like for, for you right now? I think for what, what, what you're seeing a lot of the time now is when a, I think we've just seen it at QPR with, with Gareth Ainsworth. So Gareth unfortunately loses his job, I think, on Saturday evening. And yes, last night, Tuesday, was it that they appointed the guy from over in, over in, in Sweden? Hammerby, Hammerby, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, them conversations must have happened, you know, have been happening. So it's almost, you can't wait sometimes for a job to come up and then it might be too late. At the same time, you're not going to go and knock a chairman's door and say, is there any chance you can give me the job when you sat the manager? It's, you'd never behave in that way ever. So for me, it's about continuing to to learn and it's hard to make network and what does that mean? It's, you know, I've got quite a lot of good contacts within the game. I think people know and things like this help, I'll be honest with you, um, because you're trying to, trying to stay relevant I enjoy this type of thing you touched on the five uh, chat we had with before it's 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 relaxed you're talking about who would not want to do this talk about football talk about life talk about experiences good and bad um, and ultimately a job's going to come available and an owner or a board of directors will look at a list of 70, 80, 100 applicants and decide that Dean Olden is the right one or a manager will go into a club and decide as happened with Michael O'Neill when he went into Stoke and never met him in my life he, he picked the phone up and must have heard some good things from people and said do you fancy coming in as my assistant so which I will be open to obviously at the right level um, so I'm really open minded in terms of geography in terms of job role um, I, I truly believe if you work hard enough and, you, and you're obviously competent in what you do which I believe you know, I don't shout from the rooftops but I certainly feel I'm well capable of being a championship manager again we had a really successful time at Bristol City prior to them injuries so um, I think the win record backs that up so I'm calm, but I'm a little bit anxious because I love doing what I do and I want to get back in at the, at the right time. You mentioned the, uh, you're open to various different jobs, roles within the industry. What, what can you tease that out? What, like, what would what would you be willing to to take? Is it obviously manager is is the the, the goal, but you'd be happy doing assistant stuff as well. I've been right? an assistant twice before at different clubs, different size clubs, three times actually, and I do enjoy that. I really do. I enjoy being a manager or head coach more because it's all on you. Mm -hmm. Uh, for all the reasons we've already spoken about. Um, but I think it'd be foolish to just say, right, I want to be a manager in, in, in this part of the country and that, you know, that's ridiculous. For me, it's about being open-minded. And mm -hmm. if a, if an opportunity came as an assistant manager at a level, if it was, a, say, a Premier League level or a top championship club, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because I want to be involved in good clubs where you've got a chance of success. Um, if that comes as a manager, then um, then great. Um, I talked to you a little bit about this before we came on air, but um, you've mentioned a few times that, you know, the call comes in, you could be working at a club in a few days. Um, obviously, it, it's when a, when a manager is hired, it's not just the manager who's hired. The, there's going to be a whole host of backroom staff that are brought in as well, or maybe kept on from previous um, regimes as well. Um, so, yeah, how do you navigate that? Do you have a, a bunch of... Uh, a, a bunch of uh, 
people you've worked with in the past, people who whose whose work you respect on speed dial, ready to go <laughs> as soon as the as soon as that call comes in, or is it is it very much wait for the job to come in and then and then see where where things are at at that club and then bring in the people that you need? Yeah, people I've worked with um, most recently at Charlton, previous to that at Bristol City, the two guys, my assistants there, Keith Downing, who's just left Birmingham, I thought it with John Eustace and, and Paul Simpson was my other assistant. He's doing really well at Carlisle as manager. You speak to these guys, I speak to the guys from Charlton and ultimately I think it depends what level you're going at and what the expectations from the club are. And I think when I went to Charlton, I went in on my own, I didn't take any staff. Um, I could see at the time, but they, since they, told, they told me afterwards that there was a lot of members of staff who were looking over the shoulder thinking, right, he's going to bring an army of staff in, mm-hmm. I'm going to be out the door. And they're literally waiting every time you walk in the room, they're waiting for that, have you got a minute? Here's your B45. And I, I, I chose, as I said before, I chose to observe the staff, very, very good people in there. Do you think you so get a lot of buy-in for in. that? You, you get buy-in for that, like keeping people on, are they... I, yeah, I think so. If they, if they're good enough and they're, and they're, they're capable of being good in the environment, you know, you don't want to be working with any any people that that, that, are, that are going to cause trouble, um, and not be good teammates. And I, I mean teammates as in like to staff. Um, but you've got to be competent at your job. I say it's not about just employing. I, I, one thing I would never do is bring in like me, me a mate of mine who as my assistant who would tell me how great I was every day and and agree with everything and be a yes man. That's the quickest way to the sack, you know. Charlton, I went with nobody. Even in the summer, when we could have changed some staff around, I chose because I really believed in. I really believed in it. Mm. Bristol City, I took two members of staff in because that's because it was you know two guys had left and it was open to do that. So I think every job's different. Um, certainly, people I would like to take into my next job with me if if possible. Presumably, mid-season as well. It's great to have people who know the club that they're working at anyway. It saves you having to bring in a whole host of new people and have them learn the ropes with you as well. Yeah. Um, Again, going back to Charlton, I was a couple of players that I'd worked with previously as well. So the more people on the inside you can speak to when you first get in there, the, the better, because obviously they've got an understanding of what's gone before. Um, and you haven't got the time to, you know, to waste. You know, you need to know. Obviously, I knew what the style of play and things like that was, but sort of key things that you can't really get a, a grip on until you until you're in the in the building. Yeah, the more information, the better. Yeah. And in terms of the the job market itself, there's there's obviously the line that can be trotted out by some English coaches when they're out of work that it's becoming harder and harder for English coaches to get jobs in the English game. What do you, what do you make of that? Do you do you see that as a, as a reality, or just just see that as a challenge to improve yourself? I believe it. Football so institutionalised in its thinking. You know, um, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. Far from it. I'm not smart enough to do that. But everything's a challenge, isn't it? Um, People say you've got to take a club into the Premier League from the Championship as an English coach because there's the opportunity going to come. Well, we saw that with Graham Potter, didn't we, at Chelsea? Now, didn't work out as, as as well as, well, certainly any of us would have liked. I was really excited about Graham going in there. Mm-hmm. Um, things are changing all the time. Russell Martin does, he's at he's a, um, MK Dons for a period of time. If you look at the sort of league position and where they were, same when he was at Swansea, I think Southampton recruited him on the style of play and what he could do with the younger players. So there's, there's always opportunities out there. If, you, if, if you're open to it, I'm very open-minded. I, I live in a world where anything is possible. I really do. I don't. I don't put barriers on on anything. So I think if you, as I said before, if you're good enough and you're competent enough in any industry, then you'll 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 thrive and you'll go as high as you want to do. Well, Dean, I think I've taken enough of your time. I could have carried on talking to you, and no doubt we will carry on after the thanks, John. After the the, the tape stops rolling, but um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, and good luck for for the next few months. Hopefully, something will come up for you. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>